Um, I'm going to ask you to open with me to the book of James this morning. Chapter 4. And we are going to be looking at just a few verses. I say that in tongue-in-cheek in verses 7 through 10. We're going to be covering a lot of verses this morning. And um, I have a, this is not a, y'all have heard me preach now for a long time. This, I was uh, telling Pastor Matt this week, I said the structure of this sermon is kind of, it's not my normal structuring for sermons, but that's okay, right? I mean, ultimately our desire is to just learn God's word. And that's why I was indicating even at the top end of this, let's not be, let's, you know, this, this is a sermon that, when you leave, your brain's going to feel maybe a little bit exercised because I'm going to have you thinking. You need to think. you got to get your thinking cap on. And that's what we're here to do this morning is learn from God's Word so that truth can transform our lives. Amen? And why else show up? You're certainly not showing up for entertainment value. The Spirit River Casino is somewhere around here, and they have a lot. The comedians there are way better than anything you're going to get on any Sunday morning anywhere. So if you need entertainment, there's a lot of that out there. So we come to the church for the teaching of God's Word, amen? So let's try, let's try this this morning and see, um, we're going to see how this goes. I'm going to start off with a quote from Douglas Moo out of his commentary on the book of James. And um, this really strikes a chord with me, and you've, as you've, if you've been with us, through the book of James, you have heard this theme in my teaching uh, from the beginning. But Douglas Moose states this uh, about the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. He said, what James writes in verses 6 through 10, that's of chapter 4, is, is strikingly similar to 1 Peter 5, 5 through 9. Peter also quotes Proverbs 3, 34, verse 5b following it with commands to humble yourselves, therefore, under God's almighty hand, and that he will exalt you in due time. And so this is the kind of language that, if you pick up on it, that we've been hearing in James, in particular last week in chapter 4, verse, verses 5 and 6, this kind of language of humbling yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and that he will exalt you in due time. So he's indicating how Peter is picking up on this same theme that was coming out of Proverbs 3.34. He will exalt you in due time and, that's from verse 6, and resist the devil. That's a similar theme, verse 9. These parallels suggest that what James says here may reflect a widespread early Christian call to repentance. And so if you've as I said, if you've been with us now for some time working our way through the book of James, you have heard me say that in different ways, have we not? That this is a theme that James has been, if you will, carrying forward with him through the context from the very beginning of his letter. And indeed, I would say it seems to be exactly what James is doing. Douglas Moo says, may seem, I think it's exactly what James is doing, and again, has been doing from the very beginning of his letter. You see, James wants every single person who reads his letter, of the first century that read his letter, all the way down to our time, to have a clear understanding and thus to be challenged by the fact that being a disciple of Jesus Christ, which simply means to be a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for the free forgiveness of sins, that will mean by necessity that your life has been changed by the power of God for the good, for both time and eternity. And that in the observation of said life thus changed by the power of God, the observation of that, James says very striking things like, you see that a person is justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Remember that from chapter 2. And that's what he has been articulating and making very clear thus far. And he says, in essence, to believe differently, James does, is to believe in a different gospel. As was being widely spread in the early churches, 
teaching doctrines of demons, what James called it. He said it's earthly, natural. He said it's demonic. That one could have this wrong idea that you could truly be saved, have a living faith, and yet never produce any works that would be in keeping with genuine repentance. That you can claim the one without the other, and you're still good to go, and you're getting heaven. James has been articulating strongly against that false teaching that had been permeating the early church. And this morning, James, I believe, is going to put a bow on that by calling all his readership to genuine repentance, and thus a genuine saving faith, one that would be evidenced by good deeds, by a new heart, as he has been teaching thus far. Now, in order to get to our passage this morning, I want to take you on a journey down an interpretive spiral by showing you as quickly as I can all of the theological contours that has brought us to this point this morning where James is giving a call for repentance. So, this is where I'm needing you to put your thinking caps on. Because this is going to take a little bit of time, not a lot. It's not a traditional intro into a sermon. But I'm, not more, I'm less concerned about preaching a three-point sermon that had a really nice intro and an outro with it that had a few jokes kind of, you know, blended in along the way. I'm more interested in you learning God's Word, seeing truth, and having your heart more conformed into the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. How about you? That's why I come each Lord's Day, and that's why I go to the Scriptures. So we're going to do this by starting at the very beginning. James 1. James has taught them how to properly think through trials in life and the spiritual benefits from doing so. Of the importance of prayer while in the midst of trials. Of the importance of not doubting God's goodness and purposes when in the midst of trials and of the instability of life that it shows when doing so. That of doubting. Of the importance of right thinking as regards being the children of God and the promised crown of life for those who persevere to the end. James taught and showed them that living contrary to God's ways was proof of a lustful heart given to sin. And in chapter 1, verse 16, he warned them about the possibility of being deceived into doubting God's goodness. So he reminded them that their calling was of God and that God never, ever changes and that it would be good for them to be eager to hear what he's saying, to be slow to speak against his gospel and to drop their anger that it won't achieve God's righteousness. Instead, James instructed them to put aside all of their sinful ways and in humility receive the word implanted, the gospel message he has presented them which is able to save their souls. And in verse 22, he immediately instructs them of the necessity of life change. We see this all the way back in chapter 1, of showing themselves to be doers of the word, with the obvious implication that saved souls become doers of God's word. To be a non-doer of God's word, having heard the gospel, and while claiming to have a saved soul, is a delusion. James says that person is delusional, having deluded themselves by believing a lie, by believing that errant gospel. James instructs them that true religion, genuinely saved people, have bridled tongues, while on the other hand, worthless religion, genuinely unsaved people, do not have bridled tongues, which again is proof of their delusional beliefs. So again, James teaches us to watch the life. True religion takes care of the neediest in their community, orphans and widows, all the while being careful to keep themselves unstained by the world's system surrounding them. And that was just chapter 1, by the way. You remember chapter 1? It took us a lot longer than that to get through it, but there's your favorite cliff notes for it. And then in chapter 2, James taught us how and why not to fall prey to the sin of partiality. How to rightly discern and think through the issues of genuine saving faith and good works 
so that we're not legalistic on the one hand, wrongly thinking that good works saves us, or antinomian on the other, that our lives don't have to change and we can continue living in patterns of unrepentant sin. James clearly teaches that genuine saving faith is evidenced, must be seen, he says, in the one professing the name of Jesus. And in chapter 3, he taught how to interpret the actions of our lives, which he says and shows is put on display by our tongue, that unsaved hearts and unbridled tongues go hand in hand, and that an out-of-control tongue will burn down and defile the entire course of our lives being set on fire by hell itself and that no one can tame or bridle his own tongue for the tongue the heart of man is a restless evil that is full of deadly poison that tongue or heart is full of contradictions James taught on the one hand praising God on the other hand cursing people made in God's image James taught us that for the genuine believer, it's not going to be this way. Just like a fountain doesn't send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water, just like the fig tree doesn't produce olives, nor does a vine produce figs. So James asks, Who among you is wise and understands what he is saying regarding the truth that genuine saving faith without works is a dead, non-saving faith? And rather than looking for verbal affirmation, James teaches us that such wisdom, such understanding is seen. It's put on display in the life of the one truly converted by the gospel of grace. This kind of wisdom will be manifested, James taught, by deeds. Let them show by their good deeds, their good behavior, he says, in the wisdom of gentleness. And then proceeds to show us what such wisdom from above and godly deeds will look like in the life of the true child of God. And by contrast, what earthly, natural, and demonic wisdom also will look like. And by chapter 4, James is teaching us that by the conduct of some of those so-called believers, evidenced by quarrels and conflicts that arise from within their hedonistic desires, that rather than being considered children of God, he considered them to be completely unfaithful and hostile toward God as a result of their insistence on being friends with the world, which ultimately, he said, made them out being enemies of God. But James immediately reminds them of a beautiful truth. God's jealous love for his truly redeemed people and that while God is opposed to proud, restless hearts, he always gives grace to the humble. And as we've just seen by recap, James' purpose throughout the, the, the epistle so far has been for the brothers and sisters to whom he was writing to do away with any and every behavior that wasn't beneficial to the cause of their and the community's spiritual growth, and for the preservation of the true gospel message of Jesus Christ that had been compromised by false teachers infiltrating the body, claiming that their version of the gospel was correct, a gospel message that was gutted of the necessary need for life change that Jesus had promised to those who would only come and follow after him. Again, James does all of this to enable those to whom he is writing, including now all of us, to have the best opportunity to give an accurate assessment of the true spiritual condition of our own heart. To ask ourselves, what do I truly see about myself, my heart, when I look into the pages of James's letter? Do I see a person whose life has been changed? New Godward affections, new Godward desires, Godward interests, a tongue that's a heart under the bit of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Or do I see the same old person I've always seen, still doing my same old sinning just like I always have, still telling myself not to worry about any such contradictions between my profession and life? Because after all, after all, I know I really believe in Jesus. I believe. 
And I know that I really said a prayer asking Jesus into my heart. I remember that. Being thus comforted in knowledge and in knowing that works don't save anyways and that once saved, always saved. Ergo, we make the assumption I'm saved. I, I just don't like the book of James very much. It, it, it makes me uncomfortable. So I go to some of the passages that perhaps I enjoy more, more preferably. Or perhaps maybe you're here this morning and you're left uncertain about your own personal faith claim, having looked intently at the teaching of James. And as you sit here this morning, you know you want to do something about it. Well, no matter which one of those any of us may be this morning, James in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 4 is going to show us now what to do. That will enable us to have without any doubt that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchased of God. Born of his, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long, right? This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Is this our story? Indeed. This is where James is challenging us to look very intently and closely at our heart. I can't think of anything more tragic than to go through life believing one was saved simply through the affirmation of repeating a prayer after someone or walking an aisle and getting baptized. That was my tradition. And then having your eyes closed for the last time and hearing those ter terrifying words of Matthew, Jesus from Matthew 7. I depart. I never knew you. Why? You practiced lawlessness. Your life was one of a person whose life wasn't changed. It didn't image and mirror like, like, like Jesus would be saying. Remember I said you will know them by their lives, by their fruit. Fr good trees bear good fruit. When I save people and I put my spirit within them, I give them new hearts and I cause them to walk in my ways just like I said I was going to do from the Old Testament. Did you read? And he just wants us to take life seriously and our walk seriously and to look intently at the Word of God. And so James tells us very clearly in chapter 4, verse 7, what we need do. He says in verse 7, Submit. Isn't that our favorite word? I mean, doesn't that, that word right there just kind of warms the cockles of our hearts, right? Just like submission, hupotasso, to come underneath, to rank oneself underneath. It's one of the most difficult things for us as people to do. And outside of biblical context, submission is considered in our culture one of the weakest things that a person could do. You would never submit to anybody. You're your own man, your own woman, and you're going to direct the course of your own ways, as you choose, when you want, and how you want. Now, you might not do it with that much fervor, but I think that that is kind of clearly some of our challenges with regard to the idea of submission. But biblically, when we look at submission, it's considered a great strength. It's considered a great strength. And as I said, it literally just means to rank under. God's Word calls us to rank ourselves under the sovereign rule of God. And James is indicating that if you want to have the blessed assurance, this is what your life will look like. It will look like a life of submission to God. Submit, therefore, to God. And as you learn to walk in glad submission, I'll even add the word glad. That adjective is beautiful. A glad submission to God. You will then be being conformed more and more into the beautiful image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That means that we must be subject to Him, ready to listen to Him, and eager to obey Him in how many things? All things, all things, to place ourselves under, to rank under His Lordship. This is why Paul, when writing to the church in Rome, he said, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Is there a recognition of Lordship? And I hear people say so many times, well, when you get saved, you don't really understand the whole Lordship thing. How long did it take for your little kid to understand that mommy and daddy were Lord? 
Not very long because you, unless you spare the rod and spoil the child because when that rod comes down, that child's eyes get open very widely and its intellect starts making connection points quickly. I have a master, and boy, if I don't do what my master says, it's a coming. And God graciously and lovingly says in Hebrews 12 that he disciplines those whom he loves. Isn't that great? And without such discipline, the writer of Hebrews says there in Hebrews 12 that, you're probably, that you would be, without the discipline of God, evidence in your life, you're an illegitimate child. You're not really a child of God because God genuinely disciplines his children, just like parents do. And it's not pleasing for the moment, but it yields a what? It yields a fruitful harvest of righteousness. And that's what God's doing in our lives. And as I mentioned, this, by the way, is one of the hardest things for us to do. Even saved people who know the Lord, who are having a glad submission, we're running into and bumping up against this world system in which we live, and there's all sorts of things that we are tempted to make idols into our hearts and to have a greater love than God's love, and God has a jealous love. We saw that in James chapter 4, verse 5. God's love is a jealous love for His people. His glory He will share with no one, and you are His glory. You're a trophy of His grace that He's putting upon the, the mantle of heaven. And He's saying, look at my kid, look at my son, look at my daughter, look at what my grace has done in their lives for their good. I've changed them. I took out a heart that was rebellious against me and I gave them a heart of flesh that loves me and wants to follow me and obey me. I've caused them to walk in my ways and in my statutes. Man, I can only hear and think of the reality of Psalm, I think it's Psalm 118, 119. It's in the psalm somewhere. How, how, how beautiful or how lovely is the death of God's saints. Heaven views death different than earth. When God is drawing you home, he knew your first day from your last day. And when he brings you home, it's a glorious thing. He knew exactly the moment you were going to come stand before him because he's the all-knowing God. He knows all things. He has ordained all things. And from heaven's perspective, it's beautiful because he called you from your Ur of Chaldees and he put his spirit within you and he reformed you and conformed you over a period of time, that progressive sanctification. He's been beautifying your life. He's been at work in you to willing to work for his good pleasure, not your own. And you've been submitting, a glad submission. You've been submitting, therefore, to God, evidencing the reality of that amazing sovereign grace that intersected and touched your life. As a matter of fact, did you know the Apostle Paul, this... This command that James lays out here, submit being in the uh, uh, imperative, he says, submit to God. The Apostle Paul says very explicitly in Romans chapter 8 that it's impossible for an unsaved person to do this. Only saved people can do this. And James is calling, he doesn't know who of the brethren dispersed abroad, the 12th, he doesn't know who's saved or who's not saved. He clearly knows that there is false teaching that's infiltrated the church. And he's just saying, whosoever will come, come. And how he's saying is by submitting therefore to God. Because if you have a, something within you that desires to want to submit to God, that's probably a pretty good indication that God has began that good work in you. So he's saying, do it, do it. Notice this passage, it's kind of long, but I'll get through it quickly. Paul said in Romans 8, 2, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from something. It has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Let me ask you, are you free or are you not free? When you get saved, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has done something for the good, for the life of the believer, for the, for the son and daughter of God, for what the law could not do, and it couldn't do it. It was, a, it was a school marm. It was a tutor to lead us to faith in Christ. That was the whole purpose of the Old Testament law, was to show us that we needed Jesus. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And how did he do it? By sending forth his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he Jesus condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. When God sees the sons and daughters of God, you know what he sees? He sees law keepers. 
Is that because we kept the law? No. It's because Jesus kept the law and we got buried with him. We got placed in him. We got raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. When God sees us, he sees the glorious life and the beautiful grace of his son, Jesus Christ. The imputation of righteousness freely given. The free forgiveness of sins fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. How are we? Who? How are we as believers who have been set free? Walking, we are walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and that according to the goodness of God. For those, verse 5, who are according to the flesh, notice the distinctions. For those who are according to flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. These who would be those who are unconverted, they're not saved. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, born again, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Remember what James was saying? If you make yourself a friend of the world, you've become what? An enemy of God. The Apostle Paul says the, the same thing. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Look at verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you, by distinction, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And James is saying, please check your spiritual pulse. You've been listening to a false gospel that's been telling you you can live however you want to live according to your own hedonistic pleasure and desires and still have the streets of gold. And you can't do that. James has been very forceful in his articulation of that truth. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You're not in the family. Not in the family. No discipline. That's why, you're a pra that's why you practice unrighteousness very regularly because there's no hand of discipline from the Lord. And so you just keep doing what you do because you're doing what you do in your flesh, in your heart. So when James calls us to do this, to submit, therefore, to God, the act of ranking ourselves under or placing ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, this is something that only true converted hearts, thus true believers, can do and or would want to do. And so James is saying, look closely. And so I'm saying, let's look closely. Is there a sense within your heart here this morning? I desire to live under, to rank myself under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There's one word, there's one truth. This is my standard right here. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. End of story. And then when I sin occasionally and when you sin occasionally, what do we do? Man, we feel the discipline of God. We feel the distance that comes immediately. And we're quick to repent. And say, Lord God, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I spoke so rudely and harshly to my wife or to my husband or to my kid or to my neighbor or in, in road rage moments or whatever. Forgive me. That's not bearing the image of Christ in the least. And we feel that grieving because the Spirit of God is alive in us. You can't fake that. Isn't that wonderful news? That's wonderful news. Submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in Titus 2, God's Word clearly instructs us to do something. It instructs us in Titus 2 to deny ungodliness. The wisdom of God came instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and godly in the present age. That's what the true saving grace of God does when it impacts and changes a life. It's the best definition of grace anywhere in the New Testament. Titus 2, 11. 10 and 11. Well, the next thing that James tells us to do after submitting to God is to resist. This again is in the imperative, which means it's a command. And this is something that you have to do. You must resist the devil. 
The devil is your true adversary. The devil is the one who came, John said in John 10, 10 to still kill. Jesus said, John writes it, to still kill and destroy. He's the arch enemy of God from the garden, lying, deceiving Eve into eating of the fruit, seeking to, to break the, the, the one union between a man and a woman who leave their parents and they cleave to, know, to one another and they form the foundation of human society as it's intended to be dwelt and lived before God as husband and wife, together subduing together the little parcel of land and the little space of world that God has planted them in. That's who this is. And you resist him with all you have. Paul says it like this, you need to put on the full armor of God. So that you can resist in the evil day. So many Christians I talk to, they get up, they narrowly spend any time in the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. They spend little to nil time in prayer. And if that's you, listen, I'm not here to step on your toes. I'm just here to say this is true. And then they wonder why they have such little strength, spiritual strength, to overcome the adversary's temptations throughout the course of their day. And why they have little appetites when it comes to the things of God and the people of God and being attached with and identified with a local church of the people of God and ministering there and serving and blessing the people of God. There's there's little regard given for why they're that way. And I'm telling you, it's right here. It's because they're not resisting the devil. They're not resisting the, the tempter who's trying to get them to fall back in love with the world system. To create little idols of little trinkets, of entertainments or whatever, and to place them in places in their heart that elevates that above God and above a love for God. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. Remember, he's the one that asked permission to sift Peter like wheat. And I can promise you, as a child of God who's wanting to make a difference because that's what children of God want to do. They want to let their light shine. Don't think that he hasn't perhaps asked permission to sift you like wheat as well to make your testimony ineffective amongst your family, your coworkers, your friends. Because it was just one little, out, it was just one little outing and I, well, I, I, I imbibed on all the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Because I can have heaven and I can have my friends and a piece of hell down here too. That is a prominent doctrine and theology this day. That's why I've said to you so many times, everybody who dies, everybody's Uncle Eddie. Have you noticed this? Have you ever go to a funeral? Have you ever been to a funeral where they questioned whether or not somebody went to heaven? You haven't. Everybody dies and goes to heaven now. Have you noticed that? Everybody. And you may be sitting there thinking, wow, I never knew this guy ever went to church or this gal ever went to church. As a matter of fact, I know they didn't. As a matter of fact, I know they had no love for God. But man, they'll be up there, oh, and sister, so-and-so, and Uncle Sal. You're going to see him again, the great by and by. I, I, I mean, I've been there so many times I heard that, and I just cringe, and I think to myself, how would I preach that? How do I get up there with fidelity and say, I'm not certain about Brother Ed over here. And you know what? It's not good for him, but it's good for the rest of you. To enable you to think, where you think you're going whenever we're talking over you like this? And then to give a gospel presentation, a gospel that's according to Jesus, and kind of put the fear of God in people. Because there's something about dying that does that, right? Because most people who don't love Jesus the way they ought to have a fear of death. They don't want to die. They don't want to die because this world's kind of nice. There's some enjoyable things out there. I kind of want to do that as long as I can until I have to die. Man, I, I don't know about you. I never have that thought. Do I want to be with my kids forever? Yes. And that's why I gave them the gospel, because that's the only way I'm going to get to be with them forever, is if they will come in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If they choose not to, I won't see you forever. And I can't pretend that I will. So... Resist. You have an adversary who wants to drag you down and make you ineffective for the gospel everywhere you go. Do you know that? You need to resist. And the good news is, is when we do that, he will flee from you. 1 Corinthians 13, 10. There is no temptation among man, which is... There is no... Help me out. 
Who knows that one? There is no temptation among man that is given such as common to man that God is faithful. Preach to me. Who will he'll give you a way of escape. That's where I was headed right there. Yeah, read that passage. That's an awesome verse. God is with you. And when you resist the devil and you're under submission to God, the devil will flee, not because you're some super saint, but because God is the sovereign from heaven. And Satan may have asked to sift you like wheat, but he's in, no, no. You get out of here, or whatever he says. I don't know, he hadn't told me how he says it. I'm just kind of imagining that, right? This is what James is saying we must, we must do. In Matthew 4, Jesus models for us, this goes back to the sword of the Spirit, how you fight. The tempter came, here's the devil. Remember the devil, the one you resist? He came and said to him, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written. Now I'm under the impression that Jesus probably didn't have his fully printed version of the Septuagint at this time. Nor were the, was there a, com, a complete, um, perhaps, uh, printing of the Old Testament that he was carrying around under his left elbow as he was going about. But he said it's written. He knew something. He knew God's word. And this is where people say, oh, but Jesus was God. Of course God knows his word. He's got it all down and memorized. I think Jesus was also fully man who also read the word of God so much so, and he loved it. It was his very food. He said, my food is to do the will of God who sent me that he had God's word written in his heart for moments like this. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Bam! Take that, devil. And then I'm hiding behind, I'm hiding behind it like this. You know, here it is. Here's the power. Write it on your heart. Know how to fight. Your true adversary is trying to pull you down every way he can. Now, in contrast to fleeing from our adversary in verse 8, James shows just how gracious God truly is. Notice again the very end of this, where he will draw near to you. This drawing near to you just simply means he'll come close. Jesus said, what? I will never what, leave you nor forsake you. That's true. And sometimes we wonder, what's that, what's that mean? What's that look like? How does that... I, can't, you know, I can only give you what the scripture says. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He will draw near to you. He will be an aid at your right hand. You draw near to him. He will draw near to you. And so the question becomes, well, you know, how do we kind of do some of this drawing near and God drawing near, what's that kind of look like? How do we do some of that? And I think at the end of the verse here, James delineates on that. Notice the end of verse 8. He says, here's what you do. You cleanse your hands. Who was he talking to? He was talking to individuals who were saying, hey, we can live however we want to live and still claim to have a living faith. James, you said it's a dead faith. I don't like you, James. It's not a dead faith. It's a real faith. And James said, no, look at your life. Show me your faith by your deeds. You can't. I'll show you my faith by my works, but you can't do it. So he's saying to them, here's what you do. You cleanse your hands. Oh, you sinners. And purify your hearts. You double-minded. Where did we see double-minded? All the way back to chapter 1. Verse 8. Double-minded people, he says, are unstable in all their ways. James said in verse 6 that no doubting. When there's doubting, you're double-minded. Instability. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's like James is giving you the benefit of the doubt here. He's not trying to say, hey, you're not saved. He's just saying, you just don't look like you are. You're double-minded. You're unstable in everything you're doing. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. But cleanse your hands, you sinners. Repent and do what good deeds in keeping with repentance. Purify your heart before the only true and living God. Because you sure look unsaved. If you, and perhaps you are. Perhaps you are, but perhaps you're not. 
And I think Peter did a really good job of that in 2 Peter chapter 1. Remember when Peter was talking almost just like this, and he said, Brethren, make all the more certain of God's calling and choosing you. Remember when Peter said that in 2 Peter 1? No, okay, go read it today. Assignment. Peter says, If you don't see the evidential work of the Spirit of God alive in you, you are either one of two things. You're either short-sighted, and you have forgotten the purifications from your former sins, and that you were called to walk away from them. You repented of them, remember? So he gives them the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps you're just short-sighted, you're genuinely saved, and you need to wake up. Or, he goes on to say, or you're blind. And that's where he kind of taps in to say, and perhaps you're not saved, and that's why you don't see the evidential work of the Spirit of God alive in you, because you can't fake it. He will be there. You can't suppress Him. He will be there. People say, oh, I'm suppressing the Spirit of God. Well, you may suppress him, but let me tell you, when the discipline of God comes upon you, like David said in Psalm 51, he said, the hand of the Lord was against me day and night, and my body withered away as in the summer heat. You can run, but you can't hide. You can't act like you can suppress God, like you can somehow outrun God, hide from God. Could Adam hide from God? Adam could no longer hide from God than you can. We think wrong when it comes to these things. Why do we think wrong? Oh, because there's a deceiver. Who says? Things like in Genesis 3. Did God really say? And our sinful inclinations, our hedonistic desires, what James was talking about, tends to, and is prone to move in those directions. So Peter's very gracious, and I think James, likewise, is being very gracious. And so he says, this is what you should do. You cleanse your hands, you purify your hearts, you double-minded looking people. I can't tell if you're saved or not saved. And then in verse 9, he says, and this is what you do. This is how it should impact the life when it's genuine. You're going to be miserable. You're going to mourn, and you're going to weep. It's not time for laughing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love God. I'm going to you know, do what I want, Helen. It's no time for laughing. It ain't funny. The Son of God died. We don't want to trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God with our crass behavior towards Him, do we? Of course we don't. Because our hearts have been converted. We have a love for God. We would never want to do that. Ain't no time for laughing because of sin, sinful pleasures. No. It's a time for being miserable and weeping and mourning. Your laughter needs to be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. And you're thinking, man, James, that's, um, that's a fine how do you do. Man, if, if that's the Christian life, I don't know if I really want that. But hey, the good news is, no, he's calling you to repent. And he's saying in the process of repentance, you've recognized that you've sinned against the holiness of God. You recognize that you've sinned against God's standards, and you weep, and you're mournful, and you're sorrowful of soul. You're let, you're not, it ain't funny no more. There's no joy in your sin anymore. It's mourning and gloom. But the good news is, is that he doesn't leave you there. He's not calling you to perpetually walk around as a miserable person. Sometimes I see Christians, they look a little miserable, a little rigid, a little stiff. You've seen them. I've seen them. No, he's not calling us to walk around perpetually miserably and in a state of mourning and a state of weeping. This is what we do when we come to faith. This is what we do when we get our spiritual eyes open. Again, sinning's not fun any longer. There ain't no fun, it's not, no laughing, no joy. We actually recognize the spiritual infidelity that we had against the only true and living God. And it makes us become more of a humble person who recognizes a need to submit and to repent. Spurgeon said, there's a vital connection between soul distress and sound doctrine. Sovereign grace is dear to those who have grown deeply because they see what grievous sinners they are. Indeed. And now James comes full circle. Remember verse 6, he said, Last week we ended with verse 6. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace 
to the humble. Remember that one? Full circle, verse 10. Then humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. So I told you, right here, He doesn't leave you in a state of being miserable and mourning and weeping. He will exalt you. He will put you as a trophy of grace on the shelf or the mantle in heaven and say, look at my kids. Notice what I've done for their good. And we're down here living happy lives. We have, what have we done? We have actually tasted and seen that God is good. We've tasted that living a life of integrity, of moral purity before God, that tastes really good. The other, it had a very foul, miserable aftertaste to it. Might have been pleasing for the moment, and it was momentary fleeting at best. We've, we've been there. God doesn't leave us there. He will exalt you. When? When you humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. So what does he say? God's opposed to the proud, but gives what to the humble? He gives grace, a greater grace. He gives a greater grace to the humble. And so when you humble yourself in the presence of God, what's He going to be giving you? He's going to be giving you grace, free forgiveness of sins. And when that happens and you repent and believe in faith, He exalts you. So what might it mean or look like to be exalted by God? Well, I'm going to use a little parable of Jesus to show you what this exaltation of God really looks like and perhaps means. In Luke 18, 9 through 14, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was Praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. The sinner. Where do we see this? When you submit to the Lord, it evidences itself through being miserable, mourning, and weeping. It's not a time for nothing funny anymore. There's no joy in sinning. God, be merciful to me. He's beating his breast. I'm the sinner. I'm in need of your mercy. I tell you, this man, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself under the mighty hand of God, notice, will be exalted. See it? Justified, by the way, if you remember from James chapter 2. It's the act of clearing someone of transgression. This is what God does freely. He acquits, he sets free, he removes guilt. There's acquittal, not guilty. The free imputation of righteousness from God to the sinner who is crying out in need of mercy. This is what God does, and this is how God exalts. Where is my... And this is what it means that when you will do this, and you recognize who God is and who you are, and James has been waxing on this so beautifully for now most solid four chapters... This is why I believe it's a call to faith. And I say it kind of like this, whosoever will come, come.
That sin ain't funny anymore. And I hope that you've seen in the book of James that the life, that duplicitous life, it's a very unstable place to be. It's double-mindedness. It's unstable in all your ways. Thinking that you can have a living faith, James says it's dead faith. Are you going to argue with James? No, mine's not dead. I can live how I want, but I'm still got to live. Are you going to argue with this, the inspiration of the Spirit of God who gave James to write those words? That's what the hedonistic pleasures are waging war within our members, trying to keep us locked down in doctrines of demons. Listen, I'm telling you, people need the Lord. You need the Lord. I don't know where you're at this morning. I love each of you dearly. But I don't know the true condition of any of your hearts and your souls. I love that you come to hear the teaching of God's word every week. And so I labor to lay it out here for you. But I'm more concerned about your eternal destiny than I am anything else. I want you to hear the well done and good and faithful Faithful implies something. Faithful implies a life of good deeds, a life that's been pursuing after the righteousness of God, a life that's been bearing fruits and keeping with genuine repentance. We don't want to hear, I never knew you because you, you, you practiced lawlessness. Your life, your life was a demonstration that you didn't really know me. I don't want anybody under the preaching of God's word at Jinx Bible to be confused about that at all. And so I say these things with great earnestness as I believe James has been saying this with great earnestness have you felt it I have felt it it's caused me to look even more closely at my walk am I in the faith and I'm glad to report to you that I do believe I am I love God more today than in 1988 when he converted my heart I want to know his word more intimately and more purely today than I did then I see that God has been at work in me to will and to work for His good pleasures. To the praise of His name. Nothing because of me. Let's give due consideration, brothers and sisters. You know, America's the melting pot. We're kind of like the... We've been kind of spread, scattered abroad ourselves in some ways. But some 2,000 years later, James' message is as relevant for us today as it was those individuals then. I'm going to ask you not to leave this morning without making a decision about who you believe Jesus to be. Is he Lord of your life? Are you willing, if you're double-minded, and perhaps you're kind of one foot in, one foot out, you love the world, but you love God, James is saying, it's time to get off that fence. It ain't funny anymore. Because you can't, you can't demonstrate through your life that you're actually his. All you got are words, and words, James was kind of saying, ain't enough. I don't know, that's what the Spirit inspired James to write. I'm just going to run with it. And if you need to talk with any of us, myself, any of the elders, we're always available, always available to talk about these realities. Because we are here, why are we here as a local church? To make disciples of people. That's it. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all Christ has commanded. That's it. Love God, love others. Sounds kind of simple. It means a whole lot. Let's pray.